Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Well, good morning. Good morning. Awesome. I love that. I just want to tell you straight out, the more you talk to me, the shorter I'll preach. Uh, because if you don't talk to me, I'm figuring you're not getting it. So I need to say it again. All right? Man, it's so good to see Spence with a little gray in the beard. You know, I knew him as a college student, and I feel like he's finally coming into adulthood. And uh, not sure if it changes the way he acts, but at least, you know, he, uh, he looks the part. It is, man, a great privilege for me to be here and uh, to open up God's Word with you today and uh, to share some things that I believe God's been stirring in my own heart. So I want you to know as I preach, I'm not just preaching to you, I'm preaching to me. Because this is God's word to my own heart. I've just had a little longer to sit in it and marinate on it. And I'm just going to try to unpack for you what God has been saying to me. Um, I don't know if you know this, but at, uh, in the last half of May this year, from May 17 to 31, more than 260 tornadoes touched down all across the United States. From Texas to Nebraska, then across the Midwest even to the mid-Atlantic and the northeast, these storms ravaged everywhere they touched. There were devastating outcomes. There was the destruction of property. There was the loss of life. There was really the loss of livelihood and, and years and years of memories and life that people had built in these places. And I, I got to wondering when I read that, 260 tornadoes, how, how do you live in a place like that? I, I did a little further research and discovered that Texas is uh, the place that has the most tornadoes every year, 150. But Kansas is the place that has more tornadoes per square mile. Uh, so Texas got more space to spread them out, so you might be able to dodge them. But in Kansas, you're kind of boxed in. Boxed in. You know, and I got to thinking, how, how do you live in a place where you have to learn to expect the unexpected, to be prepared for something that comes at any moment? You know, you and I are watching uh, hurricane season unfold. You know, and the crazy thing about hurricane season is you got some time. Uh, at least you get a window to know it's coming. Tornado season is not like that. Boom, here it is. You hear the howl of the wind and the roar, and all of a sudden your trees start going like this, and it's here. It's a whole different thing. So how do you prepare for that? Well, you know, they, you, did you know that you can buy storm shelters online? You, you can buy them online and have them deliver. deliver. I'm not sure Amazon does it, and I'm sure it doesn't qualify for Prime, but you can have a storm shelter delivered. You can DIY it. You can hire a contractor to do it. And, and I wondered, if you live in Kansas, why doesn't everybody have a storm shelter? Why, why doesn't everybody have one of those? As 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 frequently as storms come, why doesn't everybody have one? But you know what I learned? Immediately following an outbreak of storms like we just had at the end of the May, you know what spikes? 
the sale of storm shelters. People go running for one, trying to find one, trying to secure something for themselves. But here's what you and I know. After the storm, or in the middle of the storm, is the wrong time to start trying to figure out how to find shelter. See, what you and I know today is that not all storms in life are weather-related. Storms come in many different shapes and forms. You and I live in a sinful and broken world that is ravaged by the impact and the effects of that. Just like that, a loved one's gone. Just like that, you discover you have a diagnosis you never expected. Just like that, the health that you've worked so hard to maintain is suddenly destroyed. Just like that, the dream of the perfect family and the 2.5 kids is gone. Just like that, somebody else gets the raise or the promotion that you were sure was yours. Just like that, storms come in to our lives and they tear us up. They destroy us. They, They break apart the things that we've worked so hard to build financially. Spiritually, emotionally, physically, storms ravage our lives. And my guess is this morning, some of you are either in one or you're just coming out of one. Or maybe you're walking with somebody that's in a storm. And if none of those apply to you, here's what I need to tell you. There's a storm coming. It's coming to you. It's coming to the people around you. They're inescapable. But I want you to know that as children of God, even though you and I are not exempt from experiencing storms, we do have a shelter. We do have a hope. We do have protection. So this morning, I want us to look together at a passage that I think helps us know how to be prepared for storms, how to be ready for the inevitable, how to expect the unexpected. If you've got a copy of your scriptures, I want to ask you to turn to Psalm 46 with me. Psalm 46. And I want to say to you, uh, it's always a good idea to bring a copy of the scriptures to church with you. It's also a great idea to bring along something that you can take notes and write down. Uh, I know that week after week, Pastor Spence and others stand in this place and they offer you what God has been teaching them. And I want to tell you, church, you're accountable for that. Your application of that is on you, and if you can't remember it, you can't apply it. So you need to bring something and write some notes down, or you need to go back and listen to the sermon again and write your notes at home, okay, so that you can lay hold of these things, all right? Before we dive into the text of the psalm, I want to tell you this. This psalm has uh, what many of the psalms have, which is, which is what we call a superscription. It is a, it's usually some italic text right below the the naming of the psalm and before the body of the text appears. This superscription of this song, of this psalm, identifies it as a song. But it's not a personal and private song. It is a song, rather, that is to be used in the corporate and public experience of the people of God. And you're going to ask me, I know, how do you know that? Well, there are three ways I know that. The first is, it says, for the director of music. And as far as I know, there are only a handful of people in this church who have their own personal director of music, all right? The Taylors, all right, Zach, 
your, your personal director of music, Charlie King. There are a few others. But the most of the rest of you don't live with a personal director of music in your house. So we know it's not designed for that. The second is it says for, of, of or for the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were the choir designated to sing in the temple uh, and to lead the worship of the people of God. And the third way we know this is as we get into the body of the text, you'll see this. All of the pronouns are plural. None of them is singular. They're all plural, which tells us that it is, this is for us collectively, the people of God. Well, you might ask me, why is that important? Well, I'll tell you. Because you see, it tells us that it matters that you and I sing when we get together. And it matters what we sing. Because you see, singing together is a means by which you and I disciple each other. It's not just for your personal enjoyment. It is for the the rooting in of you of the truths of who God is and what he does. You see, these things you and I need to repeat to each other. We need to hear from each other. We need to remind each other of these truths. Worship is a means of a discipleship. And so I need you to know that whether you like it or not, whether you count yourself a singer or not, the Word of God actually commands us to sing. Do you know that in Deuteronomy 31, 19, uh, before Moses passes the torch to Joshua, he says this. God says this to him. God instructs Moses, write this song down. Teach it to the children of Israel. Tell them to sing it to their children because it will serve as a witness for me. You see, God has designed us to plant into each other the truths of who God is and what he's done. I need you to hear me say this this morning. Church, it is not your pastor's responsibility to disciple you. It is your responsibility to disciple each other. It is your responsibility to call out for each other the wonder of who God is and what he's done. It is your responsibility to work hard to build up and call out faith in each other. Do you know that it's not just for the body of Christ, though? It's for the unbeliever as well. 1 Corinthians 14.25 says this. It says that if your worship is orderly, if it's honest, if it's genuine, in fact, it says if you come together and you are prophesying, and every one of you is prophesying. Now, I don't know how you think that happens except in the context of congregational singing. That's it. That's the only place where together you and I are raising our voices to declare the truth of who God is and what he's done. The scripture says that if you and I do that together, you know what happens? Even even the unbeliever will fall on his face and say, surely God is here. You know what that means? Even the unbeliever? That means the believer is falling on his face and recognizing the presence of God as well as the unbeliever among us. So church, I just need you to hear me say, it's important that you sing. It's important that you put your coffee cup down, get your hands out of your pocket, and lift your voice and sing the praises of God. And it matters what you sing. It doesn't so matter, much matter the truth, the, the tune of what you sing, but it matters the truth of what you sing. So when your worship leaders say, sing, you need to take that from the mouth of God. Open up your mouth and sing. Because you are discipling one another. All right, let's look together at Psalm 46. I believe that Psalm 46 is a song that calls us to look above the wind and waves 
to see our Savior. I think it outlines for us four foundational truths, four unchanging realities that you and I need to remember and repeat to ourselves, to our families, to our spouses, to our friends, and to each other as we gather. All right, let's look at them together. Number one, I believe this psalm calls us to notice and call out the immutable character of God. The immutable character of God. That means the unchanging character of God. I see that in verses 1 and following. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. You see, this psalm begins simply by calling out the character of God. Who he is. Because listen to me. Because before you know what you're facing... You need to know who God is. Before you need to know anything else, you need to know the immutable, unchanging character of God. And I don't know if you caught it or not, but this description of God seems to assume the certainty of trouble and hardship. Every descriptor of God's character in this psalm addresses a human problem. Listen, you don't need a refuge unless there's an imminent storm. You don't need an outside source of strength unless you feel or experience weakness. And y'all, a helper in trouble is just that, a helper in trouble. You see, God has, has revealed himself as one who meets our needs, who comes to our port of weakness. But you see, This psalm doesn't begin with a description of trouble. It begins with a declaration about the nature of God. Y'all, that's so important. You need to know that. You need to know his character. You need to be able to call it out. Because listen, when you're in trouble, when you're facing a storm, you need to know that he is a refuge, a protector, a covering. And any trouble you face is temporary But our fortress is eternal. Listen, he's our strength. He's our strength. There's a limit to my strength. Y'all, I'm experiencing that more and more every day. I am, I'm 60 years old with a 10-year-old boy. Who thought that was a good idea? And, And I still can take him. But I'm not sure how much longer I'm going to be able to do that. Y'all, there's a limit. There's a limit to our strength. Those of us who are past the age of 40 experience that and feel that a little bit more than some of you do. But I need you to know this, that the scripture says even youths grow weary. And young men stumble and fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Listen, enduring strength's not going to come from you. I don't care how much you work out. I don't care how well you eat. I don't care what you do to cultivate your physical strength. Listen to me. It can be taken from you like that, regardless of what you've done. So you need to know that strength comes from him. But this goes on. The psalm goes on in verse 2 and 3 to to describe or magnify the character of God by setting it juxtaposed the chaos of life. Look at it, verse 2. Therefore, we will not fear. Therefore, we will not fear. Because of who God is, we won't fear. 
Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Listen, the description of trouble here is startling. It's chaotic. This is not your your easygoing kind of little stump your toe kind of trouble. This is cataclysmic. In fact, if you read it carefully, the language here is almost the reverse of the creation narrative. You see what he's describing here? He's describing the kind of trouble where creation comes undone. In Genesis, God speaks, and what happens? The dry ground rises out of the chaos of the waters, and the sea and the land are separated, and they're given boundaries. But here, even the mountains are falling and crumbling into the sea. In creation, the waters are subdued by the voice of the creator. But here, the waters roar and foam and convulse as if rebelling against the creator. Y'all, this isn't your everyday household variety of disappointment. This is cataclysmic, world-crashing-in kind of trouble. It's devastating. It's debilitating. It's unnerving. It's consuming But even in the face of that, we can be fearless when we know the one who is our refuge, our strength, and our ever-present help in trouble. Can I just stop for a second and be honest with you? That's not what most of us want. It's really not. We don't want a refuge. We want God to prevent every attack. We don't want an external source of strength. We want to never feel weakness. And we really don't want to help her in trouble. We want God to give us a life that is free of trouble. And can I tell you when that's what you seek, you know what you're looking for? You know what you're pursuing? You're looking for a life that has no need of God. You're wanting to declare your dependence, independence from him. Listen, y'all. Jesus said this, John 16, in this world, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have trouble. You're going to have hardship. You're going to have difficulty. You're going to have disappointment. You're going to face temptation. You're going to be betrayed. All kinds of trouble is going to come on you. But he said, take heart, take heart. I've overcome the world. I'm the refuge, the strength, the ever-present help in trouble. The second reality that we must remember and repeat to each other is this. Number two, the immeasurable value of the presence of God. The immeasurable value of the presence of God. I see this in verses four to seven. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy place where the most high dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Listen, in the ancient world, rivers were a necessary source of life. Life could not be sustained apart from a steady supply of water. You and I aren't any different. We just don't rely on the river. We, we still are sustained. Our physical lives are sustained by the giving of water. But they weren't just a source, uh, a, 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 
a sustaining part of life. They were a source of refreshment and joy. And it's the same thing for us here. I don't know how many of you regularly try to make your way up to Lake Norman or, or out to the coast. In fact, last night I, I watched, um, I got to admit to you, we don't have cable at home. So um, when, I'm, when I'm in a hotel and there's a cable, like, I'm a little bit of an HTTV junkie, all right? Um, I just, I like it. And so uh, I was watching the show last night and a couple from Charlotte looking for a place at North, North Myrtle Beach because they said, this is where we find refreshment. This is where we're renewed. We run to the beach for the weekend. You see, that, that's us. We're looking for refreshment. And so often we run, we run to the water. If you're out mowing the grass, you're looking for refreshment with that cold drink when you're done. But listen, many of the great ancient cities were built on or near rivers. But Jerusalem was unique. Jerusalem had no river. You see, God wanted his people to know that he was their source of life and joy. He alone sustained them. Damascus, Babylon, Thebes, all great cities around the same time as Jerusalem, all of them had a natural source of water. They were built along a great river or its tributaries, but, but not Jerusalem. And I ask you this, who chose the location for Jerusalem? Who put Jerusalem where it was? God did. Wait a minute, you mean that God, God purposefully placed his people in a location without a natural source of water? What kind of God would do that? A God who wanted his people to look to him for refreshment and joy. You see, God, God made his people riverless by divine design. And that's startling to us. He did it on purpose, but y'all, it wasn't, it wasn't punitive. It was out of love. It was purposeful because God wanted them to rely on him. Listen to me. Some of you this morning are crying for a river. You're crying for something that you think will sustain your life or be a source of joy. And God has, in effect, at this moment, withheld that from you. That's hard for you to admit. Psalm 84, 15, no good thing will he withhold from him whose walk is blameless. Listen to me. Listen to me. If you're in Christ Jesus, your walk is blameless. You're counted as righteous. And if God has withheld something from you, it is not punitive. It is because he loves you and he is trying to get you to look at him Whatever you think will sustain and supply you, apart from Jesus Christ, will never do it. It'll disappoint you every time. It'll frustrate you every time. One of my favorite Old Testament stories is captured in Exodus 33. This is long about the time that uh, Moses and the children of Israel have come out of Egypt. They've been miraculously delivered by God. And they're in the desert, and Moses has gone up on the mountain to receive the word of God, the, the Ten Commandments, which I, I think you guys are studying this summer. Mo Moses has gone to receive this word from God and come back and deliver it to his people. But when he comes down off the, 
the mountain. Moses has got a mess on his hands. You know, you, you know this? You know what's happened? Do you remember this story? They've, they've collected all their gold jewelry and they've given it to Aaron and, and he's melted it down. And he's formed a calf, a, a graven image, a cow, a gold cow. Not a Chick-fil-A cow, but a gold cow. Not the Christian cow, <laughs> but the pagan cow. He's crafted that. And you know what? They begin to say, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. Are you kidding me? Excuse me, you just melted this down and formed it, and it brought me out of Egypt. Where was it when I was in Egypt? It's on my ears. Brought me out. And God, God obviously, justifiably is angry. And he basically says, you know what? I'm done. I'm going to take them out. I'm going to destroy them. And you know what, Moses? I'm going to make a great, I'm gonna great, make a great nation out of you. And you ought to go back and dig in this because it's such, so rich and sweet. It'll instruct your prayer life. Moses knows the promises of God. He knows that God has promised to bring a people, not from him, but from Abraham. And so God pleads for the children of Israel, and God hears his prayer and relents. And he passes over, but he does still punish them. And then just after that, Moses uh, God makes Moses what I think is a startling offer. I'm going to paraphrase. He says, Moses, I'll tell you what. You go on and take them. Go on in. Just go on in. I'm going to send the angel ahead of you, and they'll wipe out all the enemies. They'll drive them all the way out. Now, listen to me. You need to hear what that means. That means, that means Moses gets to put a check by the to-do list that says, take the children of Israel into the promised land. He gets a check he gets mission accomplished success. And then he gets safety and security. I'm going to drive all the enemies out. I'm going to beat them all. I'm going to destroy them all. They're going to be gone. You're going to take possession of the land. And then God says to him this, it's a good land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, y'all, that doesn't sound like much to us, except I happen to like milk and honey. But you see, in that day, milk and honey were, they, they were the diet of kings, and so God's saying to them, look, Moses, I'm going to give you success and safety and prosperity. Deal or no deal. Oh, there was one caveat. God said, I'm not going. I'm not going with you. And Moses, because he's learned to value the presence of God, says to him, unless you go up with us, do not send us from this place. Don't send me up. I don't, want, I don't want success and safety and security if it means I'm living without you. I want you. Because how? Listen. Oh, this is so good. This is so good. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me? Do you know who's included in that anyone? Moses. Moses is saying, how am I going to know you're pleased with me unless you go with me? And how will anybody else know that? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Listen to me, church. Look at me. You live in one of the most prosperous cities in the South. Do you look at everybody? I drove down some of these roads. I, mean, I hadn't been in, in town Charlotte before. Dang. There are some houses. <laughs> Whoa. Am I supposed to assume the favor of God on those people because they live in a great big house? 
Am I supposed to assume the favor of God because they have, a, they have some safety and security around them? No. Listen, you know this. The wicked prosper. They prosper. In fact, one of the Psalms talks about the fact that the, the psalmist had a problem with that because says everything goes well for them. They're always healthy. Everything works out. Their investments always go up. They always get the promotions. Their children do great. Everything looks peach keen. Is that how you know the favor of God? Look, look at me. You don't know the favor and blessing of God because of your external circumstances. You know the favor and blessing of God because of the indwelling presence of Christ. And look at me, if you're not abiding in and dwelling in and enjoying the presence of Jesus day by day, I'm just telling you, there's no wonder, there's no wonder you're so caught up in depression and anxiety and worry because you don't know if God's pleased with you or not because you're judging it by your circumstances. Listen, Psalm 1611, in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Listen, y'all, it's in, the, it's in abiding in the presence of God that you and I know his favor and his blessing. The third thing this song calls us to consider is this, the incomparable work of God. The incomparable work of God. Verses 8 and 9, look at it. Come and see. Now remember, this is them singing to each other, come and see, come and see, come and see what God has done, the desolations he's brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Come and see what God has done. Listen, the people of God in that day had a history of God intervening in their lives. They had a backstory that told of the faithful work of God on their behalf. And that history of faithfulness, listen to me, it is as important to you and I today as it was to them in their day. Listen, you need to reconsider what God did in creation. You need to consider what God did in delivering the children of Israel from captivity in Exodus. You need to go back and read the Old Testament because it is the unveiling of the character of God demonstrated in his work. Listen, do you know Second uh, Chronicles 20? This is the story of how God delivered King Jehoshaphat from the people of Moab and Amnon. Don't look at it now. Write it down. 2 Chronicles 20. You need to go read it. Because you know what? That might be an old story, but it's a true story. It's an actual record of what God did. And you need to know this because you know what it says? It says God delivered King Jehoshaphat and he didn't lift a hand. His, shoulder, his soldiers didn't even pull their sword out of their sheath. God fought for them. And some of you need to know today that God can and will do that for you. And you don't know that because of what you've been through. Listen, do you know what? God hadn't done that before when he did it for King Jehoshaphat. And I don't know how many times he's done it since. But you and I need to know those stories. We need to tell them because we need to be reminded. Psalm 30, verses 10 and 11. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the people. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever and the purposes of his heart through all generations. Listen, y'all. I can believe that 
for me because there is a host of historical evidence that God has done that. And I can believe it because God has done it in my own life in the past. And I need to recount it and recall it and tell about it because past grace is a promise of future grace. And y'all, we need to get together and quit talking about what somebody else has done. Can you believe they did that? Who gives a flying flip? Let's talk about what God has done. Let's stir each other to faith by remembering the mighty work of God. Are we in a heap of trouble in this country? Yes, we are. And you can talk all day about whose fault you think it is. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter a hill of beans whose fault you think it is. Who you think is going to get us out of trouble? A new, a different party in the White House? Can I just say to you, has that happened yet? What is wrong with us? You know who's going to deliver us? God's going to deliver us. But you know who's going to judge? God's going to judge. And so you and, I, you and I need to anchor our hope for the future in the past work of God. But y'all, we have on record a more remarkable victory that gives us confidence. Hope. We celebrated it in communion today. It is the triumph that impacts my present and my eternal future. Colossians 2 says this, When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave all our sins, having canceled the charge that was against us, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Listen, verse 15, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public of them triumphing over them by the cross. Y'all, that's the victory and the celebration. That's the defeat and the victory party. Y'all, we should be calling that out to each other. You need to repeat the gospel. The gospel is not just for when you started. It is for every day. You need to anchor in on that. You need to call other people. You need to remember it. You need to examine it. You need to read those passages again. You need to soak in it. It needs to become the core of who you are, because it is your guarantee that, that God is going to finish what he started in you. Romans 8, 32, one of my favorite verses. How will he, how will he who did not spare his only son, not also along with him, freely give us all things? You want to know how you know God's going to be your refuge and strength and an ever-present help in trouble? He sacrificed his only son for you. And don't pass that over and don't write it off and don't, don't say that's old news. Y'all, that's, that's necessary news and you and I need to know it. I got to tell you, y'all, as I prep this sermon, as I stand here and preach it, there's great conviction that comes over me because I wondered, I got two little boys, they're 10 and 11, and I wondered, am I recalling and repeating and celebrating what God has done, how he's worked in my own life, how he's delivered me, how he's brought me through storms, how he's provided for me. Am I talking about that, the past work of God, in a way that would cause my children to believe they can trust him? Listen to me. Some of you talk about your circumstance in a way that wouldn't make anybody want to follow God. You need to talk about it. Do your children know your testimony? Y'all, we're so, we are so Oh, we are so consumed. We live in a fake book. Fake book. That's what it is. Fake book age. I look at people's feed. I think I've been in your house a hundred times. It ain't never looked like that. 
and you fed me dinner, and there has never been a plate in front of me that looked like that. And I've seen your children. They don't act like that. We live in an age that's so consumed with putting up a front and making everybody think we got it together. Listen, you got it together won't help them a bit. You are a wreck, and Jesus rescued you. You were dead, and he brought you back to life. You were consumed and bound by sin, and he set you free. That's what will help them. So stop trying to be together and tell the backstory so somebody will know Jesus saves. You're coming here on Sunday morning and acting like everything's great doesn't help anybody. The person seated next to you knows that Jesus is bigger than your trouble. And they need to hear about your trouble. And we need to carry each other's burdens together. But it's not up to us, y'all. He's our refuge and strength and an ever-present help in trouble. And we got to call each other to that. Let me say this. Men, look at me. If you talk about anything more than you talk about the character and the work of God to your wife, to your children, to your neighbors. You are uncovering for them your idol. You see, you talk about what you love. See, some of you, some of you are raising kids who think that life is found in recreation. They think it's found in following a sports team. They think it's found in investment. They think it's found in climbing the ladder. And let me tell you something. You're setting them up for trouble and distress and hardship and pain. And you need to talk about Jesus. Listen to me, dads. Dads, listen to me. It is not this church's responsibility to disciple your children. It's yours. Moses said, after the giving of Ten Commandments, you talk about this. You talk about it on the way. You talk about it when you get up, when you lie down. You talk about it in the everyday life. Some of you can't talk about it because you don't know it and you need to get in the word and you need to get into discipleship and you need to examine the work of God and you need to look at the character of God and you need to let that begin to come out of your mouth. Listen to me. If your children depart the faith, it will not be the church's fault. It will be yours. And I want to say this to every person who's walked with Jesus more than five years. If you aren't regularly pouring into somebody behind you. You are not walking in obedience and surrender. I ran up on this verse um, a few weeks ago, and it just undid me, undid me. Judges 2.10. It's talking about Joshua and the whole group of, of, of uh, that age that was dying off. And it says, after that generation had all departed. Listen to me. There arose another generation who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Y'all, that, that, that takes my breath away. It's possible that I can die and my children won't know who God is and what he's done if I don't talk about it. Listen to me. If you're over 40, you need to get up off your lazy rear end. You need to give up some hobby you got, and you need to apply yourself to the discipling of these young professionals and the generation that's behind you. They should never have to beg for people to work in mercy, kids. We ought to be all falling over each other to have the chance to get in front of our children and tell them who God is and what he's done. Because look at me. If the next generation rises up and doesn't know the Lord, 
and doesn't know what he's done. Look at me. You look at me. It's on you. It's not on Spence. It's not on Scott. It's not on the rest of your staff. It's on you, the church, discipling, pouring faith into each other. All right, I got to go. I ain't got more time than that, all right? I don't think y'all can handle it anyway. All right, here we go, number four. The fourth thing that you and I need to remember and repeat to each other is this, the infallible word of God. The infallible word of God. Look at it, verse 10. He says, God says, be still. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Listen, y'all, the final word in this great song comes from the mouth of God. But it might not be what you think it is. Hush! Hush! Shh! Quiet! Enough! Be still! This is not a peaceful platitude. It is a forceful reproof. And it is offered as a command to the roaring of the waters and the raging of the nations. But it is also a rebuke to the fretting of God's people who are caught in turbulence and trouble. In one sense, it doesn't matter who he's talking to. The message is the same. You need to hush. You need to shut up and be quiet. Your fretting isn't necessary. It isn't productive. Your raging is useless. It won't succeed. God says, I alone am God. I'm God, and I'll be exalted. I'll be victorious over all. And one day, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Y'all, that's the coming fulfillment of this verse. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Listen to me. Nothing is more secure, more secure and more reliable and more trustworthy than the Word of God. It is infallible. It is without error. It is exactly as God intended us to have us. And in a world that is full of trouble, you and I need to know the word of God and cling to it. We need to know it and cling to it. It doesn't matter how you feel. Do you feel unsure about the first purpose? Do you feel unsure about the future? Then you need to know that no matter how many promises God has made, they are all yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Do you, need, do you feel alone? Well, you need to know Deuteronomy 31.8, the Lord himself will go before you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Do you feel like a failure? Then you need to know Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to carry it on to completion. Do you feel unloved and unwanted? Well, you need to know Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. Do you feel overwhelmed by guilt and shame? Then you need to know Psalm 133 and 4. If you, O oh Lord, kept a record of sin, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Do you feel helpless and defeated by temptation? Then you need to know 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. He'll not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape so that you might be able to stand up under it. Y'all, we need to be able to... Repeat the word of God. You are not going to feel your way into trusting God. You, listen to me. You will not feel your way into trusting God. You got to truth your way in. You're, listen, your, your feelings are unreliable. Your heart, Jeremiah 17, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Don't look to your heart. Look to the word of God. 
And church, we have to regularly be giving ourselves to this, calling each other to see the immutable character of God, to go after the, the value, the, the uh, what did I say? The immeasurable value of the presence of God. We, we got to be stirring each other up to remember the incomparable work of God. And y'all, we've got to be anchored to the infallible word of God. God is our refuge and strength. An ever-present help in trouble. Church, you might be in the middle of a storm. Or you might be just coming out of one. Or you might be on the edge of one. Either way, it doesn't matter. You and I can be storm ready when we are anchored and we are anchoring each other to the four truths of this psalm. Can we pray together? God, thank you for your grace and mercy. God, thank you that you want us to be in perfect peace when we fix and stay our minds on you. So God, help us do that today. Help us call each other to that. God, help us call a watching world, a wandering world, a lost world to look at the greatness of who you are and trust in your work alone. We pray this in Jesus' name.